Hello, welcome back. You're listening to the Scouted Football Podcast. Uh, the UEFA Champions League and Europa League return this week uh, with holders Sevilla featuring in Europe's premium competition uh, this year. But we have the likes of Arsenal, Spurs, Celtic, Rangers, Bayer Leverkusen, AC Milan, Villarreal, Napoli, Roma and a whole host of other prestigious clubs in this year's edition of the Europa League. 48 teams from 24 countries, which goes in quite nicely. Um, they'll battle it out for supremacy in, in the group stage before the third place finishers in the Champions League groups will join at the round of 32 stage. Uh, as always, I'm Joe Donoghue, I'm your host of the Scouted Football Pod. And this week, we're joined by a returning podcast guest in Lee Scott. Um, Lee spoke to us last month about four emerging talents in Belgium, Denmark and the Netherlands. And what was a really intriguing episode for me personally, uh, and, and we had a few nice comments about that. So we thought we'd uh, we'd get him to reprise his role as, as our Y Scout expert uh, and, and aficionado on, on this one. Um, but yeah, as it, we're, today we're going to, to tackle a similar task um, in assessing sort of the fortunes of, of four teams, but this year, uh, this time competing in the Europa League. Um, and and. I think Lee will probably agree with me here, but they're, they're the four teams who I think are the most stacked with, with under-23 players. Um, but yeah, first things first, Lee, welcome back to the podcast. No doubt delighted to get the call up again. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thanks very much, Joe. Really appreciate it. I've had a lot of fun recording last time. And as you said, it seems to have gone down quite well. So, so hopefully this one will as well. Yeah, I, th- I think so too. I think um, just from from speaking to you briefly beforehand and, and the teams we've picked out, I'm I'm looking forward to it. Um, now I've got a question for you. If the chance came knocking and you were given the opportunity to appear on the Scouted Football Podcast for an unprecedented third time, but it coincided with you being offered the role of a one-time opposition analyst for Scotland's Euro 2021 playoff with Serbia, what do you think the topic of discussion would be on your third appearance on the pod? <laughs> uh, who knows? I think I think we'd have to do a breakdown of Serbia and just try and get away with that and combine the two roles. Obviously, Scotland are are well on their way to, to qualifying now. So <laughs> the the kilts looked out. I've got the, the tartan Jimmy wig, and my kids are all excited to see Scotland play for the first time in a major tournament. Uh, yeah, I mean, one game away. It's probably the best opportunity that that Scotland are going to get for a, for quite a while. Um, <laughs> so and 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 have had for quite a while. So. Um, yeah, I'm not surprised uh, in, in uh, that regard. They've missed, they've missed Norway with Haaland and Odegaard as well. So I know Serbia are still going to be a tough task with Milenkovic, Savic and Mitrovic and all the others that play for them. But you never know in a one-off tie. And I think as, as as much of a shame as it is that there won't be fans in the stadiums um, next month in November when the game is played, I think that a lot of Scotland fans will be very pleased to know that going to Belgrade, but being the game being held behind closed doors is probably going to be a blessing in disguise, um, considering how how enthusiastic we know that the Serbian supporters can be. Yes, exactly. I know a few people that would probably make the trip. Uh, somebody with kids, I wouldn't be keen to do it myself, to be perfectly <laughs> honest with you. Um, it is on my bucket list to to go across to Serbia, to Belgrade for a match at some point, but that'll be as a, a visiting fan, not as somebody with a, an invested interest in one team or another. Yeah, uh, maybe not for the eternal derby either. That one does get a bit yeah. fiery in every sense of the word. Exactly. <clears throat> um, but yeah, the the Benelux or the Beneden episodes, um, really enjoyed doing. Um, but I mean, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's stick to to number two that we've got already, um, and that is the Europa League, of course. Um, so we've gone through the squad lists of the of the forty eight, and we've decided on on the four who are were chock filled with with under twenty threes for us to discuss. 
Um, and I think rather unsurprisingly, they're, they're quite well-known teams and sides that you'd expect to progress in the competition um, to at least the knockout stage this season, mainly because, you know, those those more prestigious sides in the, in this competition, um, they, they they can afford to, to blood their younger players um, a bit more. Um, but we've, we've gone for, and you can drum roll if you like, um, PSV Eindhoven, AC Milan, OGC Nice and CSK Moscow. Um, and I think you'd say Milan could well be fancied for a run at the Europa title. Um, nice and, and PSV less so, um, perhaps, but hey, it's a long season, we don't know. Uh, and, and CSK, I think, maybe a little bit less than them. But equally, after a bit of research and sort of deliberation with myself, I think they're all very fun sides to, to, to be contesting this year's competition. Um, and Lee, I think we'll, we'll begin with PSV Eindhoven because uh, I've I kind of decided the order in a very quirky little way because if you were to walk from PSV's Philips Stadion, um, it would take you nine days to reach the Stadion Enega and Gdansk where the final <laughs> is set to be played next May. Um, do you fancy it? Buy some good walking boots? Yeah, yeah, I've already got a pair. I'll, I'll be there. I'll do it with you. Well, we'll go that way. But my <laughs> wife went to Gdansk a few years ago with one of her friends and left me at home, so maybe it's my turn this time. <laughs> Ditch the van in Eindhoven and walk the last 600 miles or so. Yeah, that would be uh, that'll be quite a trek. Um, well, th- I mean, this is this is the best option we've got, and, and tell you what, wait till you hear the other routes for the other teams. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> there's a few mountain ranges we might have to traverse. Um, but anyway, PSV Eindhoven. Then I thought I'd begin with sort of a little fact file um, managed by by Roger Schmidt, who um, who's recently been managing in, in China, but has also uh, previously managed the Red Bull Salzburg uh, and in Germany. Um, captained by Denzel Dumfries, um, which is quite interestingly a very Scottish surname for a Dutchman. Um, uh, I wonder if he has any uh, any family from Dumfries and Galloway. <laughs> I'd like to think that somebody from the SFA tried to recruit him at some point, but he, he's actually just a very good Dutch right back. I was going to say, we, we could have done well with, with Dumfries because, you know, we have Tierney, Andy Robertson and, and Aaron Hickey coming up on the left. It would have been all right to have Dumfries over Stephen O'Donnell on the right. Exactly, exactly. Um, last season, though, PSV finished uh, fourth in, in the Eredivisie, which was, was curtailed in, in March uh, and, and didn't make it out of their Europa League group um, last season, which was probably a bit of a disappointment, um, considering that they, they were in with the likes of Rosenborg and, and Sporting from Portugal. But this year, uh, their group stage opponents are Pauk, who are the Greek runners-up. And you, you might remember, um, they made the news a few seasons ago, uh, because their president uh, stormed the pitch, apparently yeah. brandishing a gun. Yeah, um, uh, I think they were quite close to winning the Greek title at the time as well, and a referee doesn't have gone against them. And next thing you know, the president is on the pitch. I think the president's quite a colourful character by all accounts. He's got some links to to some unsavoury characters in Russia, I seem to remember. And yeah, he, he had a, a gun holstered in the, the waistband of his jeans or something like that. Not what you want to see, top-level football, really. It's a bit Wild West, isn't it? I mean, it's aside from actually having the gun in a hip holster... That is, which is in itself, just missing a cowboy hat and some spurs on his boots. Um, but yeah, that's a bit, mm, <laughs> not not so sure I'm a, I'm a big fan. Um, but they've also got um, Granada, La Liga side, um, once managed by Tony Adams, of course, and doing considerably better now than they were under him. Um, now that they've come, qualified for, for the Europa League. Uh, and, and interestingly, they've got Ammonia Nicosia, uh, who are the Cypriot champions. Uh, and they are managed by an ex-Premier League player as well, Man United defender Henning Berg. So um, quite a, quite an interesting little group. 
there. Um, but do you have any sort of interesting little anecdotes or pearls of wisdom about any of PSV's opponents, Lee? Uh, I, I don't off the top of my head. Amoni and Nicosia, I know, are a very technical side, perhaps not the, the kind of level that you would expect for for PSV to face week in, week out. They're, they're below the level, for example, of the normal Eredivisie. Granada are a really interesting side to me. Obviously, Yangel Herrera, the, um, the Venezuelan midfielder who's on loan from Manchester City again this season. Very good player, and I know he's a scouted football favourite. Pauk, um, as you say, other than the fact that they have a colourful owner, I don't know a whole lot about them, but that's part of the beauty for me about the Europa League because you have teams like PSV Eindhoven who under Roger Schmidt I expect to be really interesting this season, especially from a tactical perspective because he is such an interesting tactical coach. He's he's somebody who has very much... He, he was part of, he was coach at Red Bull Salzburg for a period of time and, and he really absorbed a lot of the philosophies and the game models and intricacies of, of how the Red Bull teams like to play from there. So it's, it'll be a 4-4-2 and it'll be high aggressive pressing. It'll be lots of attacking movement, forward movement, vertical passing. So it'll be an interesting side to watch and especially with the group of under-23 talent that they've got. I think that a lot of people who are fans of the Scout Football handbook the the twitter account and of course the podcast will really be looking to tune into their matches when they can yeah i mean on, on thursdays i think psv are probably going to be if if not my first choice then may, like second or at the very least third um yeah. depending on the the matchups because as i mean as you say you know that is kind of the beauty of of the europa league in a sense is that you come up against teams that ordinarily um you know you you just wouldn't be aware of i mean Armonia and nicosia yeah they're, they're cypriot champions but i think if if you asked most, if you just gave people their name, you'd be like, "Ooh!" Most people would be thinking, "I wonder," you know, "I wonder where they're from." Um, but it's interesting you say that their, their standard is is probably lesser than um, than than the Eredivisie. So um, that'll be, I don't know. I think I think Schmidt's sides. I mean, yeah, of course, hugely attacking um, that that four four two where where the two wide players in the midfield effectively double as sort of additional forwards. Um, yeah. I think. You know, we could see some very high-scoring games in in terms of on both sides of the pitch um, for for PSV this season, both in the Eredivisie and especially in the Europa League. I think probably Granada, given the fact that they play La, La Liga opposition week in week out, um, yeah. they're probably going to be the 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 team who will push PSV the hardest uh, in this group. But again, Europa League don't rule it out. You know, you you, you know a tough trip to to Pauk or to Nicosia. Um, you know, well. To Pauk, to Thessaloniki, where Pauk are based, um, you know, there's, there's, there's the scope for for upsets, but um, yeah, right straight into the the main course, and you know, you've just touched on Schmidt's style and philosophy there, and what he'll bring to to PSV, um, uh, and I think, you know, we, we spoke about uh, Cody Hakpo on the previous episode, uh, and but. I think the summer business, you know, they, they quite it was quite polarized in terms of they brought in some very old players, they brought in some very young players, and I think that that kind of um, that, that's going to help balance the squad in a way. Um, Marco Goetze clearly being the big one, World Cup winner, joining on a free transfer, uh, while Eran Zahavi signed from Guangzhou R and F in China, um, and they're twenty eight and thirty three respectively, um, but. I think the two that I really want to speak about um, first is the the signing of Ibrahim Sangare from Toulouse on a five-year contract when it seemed as though every club in Europe should be after him, um, at least for the price he was f- available for anyway. 
Um, I mean, just starting with Sangare, what, what was your take on that move and sort of how, how you see him sort of beginning the season in, in a Schmidt side? I think it caught everybody by surprise, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, Sangare is a player who has been the um, the darling of the football analytics com- community for a long, long time when he was at Toulouse. I think a lot of people were expecting to see him move to a much more high-profile league, especially when Toulouse were relegated. So there were links to the likes of Southampton in the Premier League where, again, he would have been good in a similar kind of system to, to Roger Schmitz under Ralph Hasenhutl at Southampton. They would have seen the similar kind of thing. But it makes a lot of sense and to an extent for Sangari to make this move. I think that potentially he wasn't happy with the options that were on the table in terms of the size of the club, if you like. And that's no disrespect to Lexus Southampton and to the other teams around the top five leagues that were linked to him. I just think that he sees his level almost a step higher. So in a way, moving away from a relegated team to a team like PSV protects his value slightly in his own eyes. So he'll now have a season. I don't I don't for a second believe that he'll be at PSV for five years. That's just a very smart move from the club to, to absolutely protect an investment with a long-term contract. I think Sangari will have a year, a year and a half, two years at the very most in Holland, and then he'll be looking to kick on to the level that he thinks he can play at. But for anybody who hasn't seen Sangari play, he's a really, really interesting player at Toulouse. He, he was more of a six, either in a double pivot or at the base of the midfield on his own, but he can play as an eight as well. He's got really good size, very tall, similar in, in stature in terms of his body to Wilfred Ndidi of Leicester City. But Sangari perhaps has a little bit more technical ability on the ball than Ndidi does. He's got that ability with really long legs just to, to knock and nudge the ball away from opposition players to get past them. So he carries the ball well through midfield. He's got a great range of passing. And he's a player who can really drive his team forward. I think that for, for Schmidt in this 4-4-2, he'll play as one of the two midfielders. And his ability to either play as the six in the defensive phase or the eight going forward will really be key. I think we'll see him more as the runner pushing forward into the, the opposition half more than anything else. But I think that you're right in touching upon the fact that he's one of the most interesting players. I mean, yes, Mario Gotze, really, really interesting seeing Gotze go to PSV because you, you kind of feel like this is his last chance to prove that he can play at this level. But Sangare is one who, at 22 years of age, is really ready to push on to the next level. Um, I'm not surprised at all that you picked him out there. I take it you've got a high opinion of him as well, Joe. Yeah, I've got massively rate. I massively rate Sangare because I mean there was a point where Newcastle were were, were linked with him, um, and you know he's the type of player that, that Newcastle and teams of that ilk uh, have been lacking. So I, clearly, I watched you know a lot of a lot of him at, at Toulouse, and it was just the the, the Ndidi comparison is is quite accurate. I, I think. But they can both be disruptors. Um, but I think Sangare perhaps possesses the ability to to also be a bit press resistant as well when he's doubling as that as that eight figure um, going forward, you know, out of midfield. Whereas Ndidi kind of remains at the base um, of the, of the of the midfield because he has the likes of Yuri Tielemans ahead. And I think that's something that is going to be beneficial to this PSV side. And I have absolutely no doubts that when moving to PSV. Um, the, the the club have have 
clearly outlined the role that he can play in this team that's going to help him protect his value, as you say. You know, I, I don't see him being bested by many central midfielders um, in, in the Eredivisie this season. So naturally, he's he's still going to be that um, that that unknown quantity, really, in, in sort of Premier League or Bundesliga or Serie A, La Liga terms. Um, so... Um, yeah, I think it's it's a smart move because again, he's 22. Even if he spends a year there, he protects yeah. his value, uh, and and it, from a financial perspective as well, the likelihood is that he will be sold from PSV for a much higher fee than the nine million or, or whatever it was um, that that he was sold from from Toulouse. And any clauses that are involved in in that sort of as in percentages of transfer fees, you know, he's he, he, you know he wants to be adequately compensated for for how instrumental he was to Toulouse to PSV. So. I think it's strange to be talking about a player's next move, um, depending, considering he's just moved this summer. But it is just one which you know that it's not really not a stepping stone, but it just helps him get on that. that it, just, it helps him stay on that platform because I think there could have been a lot of moves that he'd made this summer where perhaps he was maybe jumping in the deep end um, a little, a little bit prematurely. Um, because you know not every team has the same setup. I think with Schmidt, he has got that ability to be that two-way midfielder in this in this four-four-two, um, which is first of all beneficial to PSV, but also he's going to have that freedom, that time on the ball uh, in Eredivisie, and especially in this Europa League group as well. Because I mean, apart as I said, apart from Granada, I don't really see the other two teams causing them too much too much issue. So essentially, it's a, it's a it's a ticket to the to the knockout stages as well. And I think Sangari will be instrumental throughout. Um, but there was another there was another midfielder who um, who signed for a PSV, albeit on loan. Um, but he was great uh, on on loan at Hamburg last season um, uh, from from Bayern Munich, and uh, that's Adrian Fine. Um, he's he's twenty one, uh, so of a similar age to Sangare, um, and just he was just very very tidy, good distributor, um, good at just picking that made lots of recoveries uh, in front of the defense, um, very similar to what. Sangare does in his defensive phases. Um, I mean, I hope he lives up to his surname, Lee. But you know, depending on depending on um, how how instrumental Sangare is, do you see the potential for maybe an Adrian Fine, Ibrahim Sangare double pivot? I think that's exactly what what I expect to happen eventually for PSV this season. I think that there was a lot of talk in the preseason about Fine getting a chance in the Bayern Munich midfield and and that really tells listeners a little bit about his quality for those that haven't been following him the way that yourself and, and myself have been. He's, he's been a player who's been on my radar for a little while because of his ability to do just as you say. He, he breaks up play extremely well in front of the defence and then he's got a really, really nice and interesting range of passing. He finds those driven balls between the lines, but he can also change the angle of the attack with diagonal passes. He is a compliment to me to Ibrahim Sangare because Sangare, as we said, he will break up play, but then he's more of a driver with the ball. He's a player who will look to push forward. He'll beat a player and, and try to burst forward towards the opposition half and, and fine is more of a distributor. So I think that when you talk about midfield balance, as from a tactical point of view, people always talk about the three different things you have to have in a midfield. You have to have a, a destroyer, you have to have a passer, you have to have a runner in that central area just to really balance everything out because Sangare and Fine can both play as a destroyer they then complement one another with their different ways that they can contribute in the attacking phase and Fine is a really interesting profile at 21 
I don't think that Bayern would have let him go permanently. Um, I think he's made a, a good move. I think that Roger Schmidt being at PSV probably played a role in this because obviously Bayern would be keen to see him move to a coach who, who plays in a, a certain style of play away and a, a, a style of play that focuses a lot on transition, which is obviously something that Hansi Flick does as well at Bayern Munich. So this gives Bayern an opportunity to play regular first-team football, not at the second tier anymore, but at the first tier. He'll get exposure to the Europa League. He'll get exposure to playing against different cultures, different styles. And then hopefully he'll come back to Bayern next season ready to contribute in the midfield. But with Thiago now having gone from Bayern Munich, Bayern could potentially have a role to play sooner rather than later in the Bayern Munich midfield. And again, that just speaks to his quality for me. Absolutely. Um, I completely agree with what you're saying there, Lee. Um, I think... Yeah, I think the fact that he was just considered for for a role in this Bayern team this season, um, again speaks volumes of of, of the quality that he has. Um, because ultimately, you know, th- th- this is the German and, and European champions. Exactly. If coming coming from from Hamburg, who you know didn't have a great season in in the zwei Bundesliga last year, but I think for, for again, for, it's like very similar for loan players when they go out to the championship. You know, you can you can have a very very good season, and and people can can identify that even if the team isn't doing well as, as a collective. And I think Fine was was probably one of those one of those prime examples. Um, just, we, we've spoken about um, PSV's tactical setup, how Roger Smith's going to play with sort of a four four two, essentially how it's going to look on the team sheet, um, but. The bulk of PSV's fun young players, um, they play up top. Um, yeah. And there's, there's one player, though, who, who I'm, I'm already a fully paid up member of the fan club, um, Moe Hatterin. Um, he's a number 10 predominantly, um, but can also play out wide as a shadow striker. You know, he's quite versatile in that sense. Uh, and he's still only 18. But I think with the introduction of Mario Goetze, with Schmidt perhaps focusing more on transition than relying on that one creative touch point. I do worry ever so slightly about how much time Yehatterin's going to get, especially because he is so young and he's only had the one season where, admittedly, he was instrumental. Um, but he just has that. He's, he's a lot more nonchalant than I think Roger Smith would want in his attacking players. Um, I think the, the, dynamic, the dynamic of adding Goetz as well into the mix means that there will be fewer minutes. Mm-hmm. And I think that'll threaten his chances of being included in, in the Netherlands' um, Euro squad in the summer. Because I think he probably would have been mm, maybe one of the fringe picks this year uh, if the tournament had gone ahead on the back of the season he just had. But now, w- with the way that this season could pan out, I think in nine months' time, if if he hasn't been given... so if he hasn't If he hasn't adapted to maybe playing as a shadow striker or playing better out wide in those small spaces, um, then I think he might find himself a little bit um, stretched for minutes. Yeah, I think the, the issue with Itarin is that he is a, a 10. He's You're right, he can play wide, he can play as a second striker, part of a front two, but if you asked him in his, in his heart exactly what his role was in a team, he would call himself a 10. And he's got everything that you want from an attacking player 
from for an 18 year old to have he's got the the ability to change direction quickly he carries the ball well he's agile he receives well on the back foot opens up his body and plays his first touch into space away from the defenders he's press resistant because of his, his ability to shield the ball and and twist and turn and move away from defensive players and he's got an eye for a pass as well um, his the weight of his through balls is very very good and he, he doesn't mind receiving the ball and then turning possession out to the wide areas and breaking into the box so from an attacking point of view he's a player who really should be the focal point of a PSV side when you think about what PSV are as a club and um, a young player who's came through the ranks who's made this kind of impact and has already been part of the Netherlands squad at 18 you would think that that would be something that they would be very keen to build around but you're absolutely right that the problem that he's going to face under Roger Schmidt is that he's not quite as developed from a defensive standpoint. He's not a player who likes to track back that much. He's not a player who presses really aggressively. He's somebody who prefers to, in the defensive phase, he prefers to press in the first instance perhaps, but then when the ball bypasses him, he likes to stay a little bit higher to try and drift into spaces, to drift into little gaps and then receive the ball in quick transition. So, I think that if he is going to make his impact this season under Schmidt, it'll be as one of two strikers and it'll almost be a split system with the other striker being the the vertical threat, which they have, and and Daniel Malin. Um, And Ataram will be the player who drops towards the ball a little bit more to link in to allow those quick vertical passes, the up-back and through movements that, that Schmidt's teams like to play. I think he has a role to play there, but whether his attitude as well is going to be an issue remains to be seen. There were there were doubts around the way that he conducted himself a little bit in international duty when he was away with Holland. He wasn't happy that he perhaps wasn't getting the minutes that he thought he deserved. And I suppose as an 18-year-old, you, you can't fault his confidence in that regard, that he believes that he should be part of the senior international setup already. I think that the the problem will be keeping him grounded a little bit and and having him buy into the the tactical discipline structure that that Roger Schmidt likes to use. But in terms of pure talent, I don't think it's it's very difficult to think at least of a another player in the Eredivisie at the moment who is up with him in terms of just pure ability. I think I think I'd agree with you there. Um, in terms of pure talent on the ball. Um, especially for someone his age, because it was clear. I've I've said this before on this podcast, but I said it at the beginning of last season. You know, he he, he was going into that year in the in the young PSV side, but it became apparent. It became so clear um, after about one game that he was simply he was simply running the games in the second yeah. tier, and that he could yeah. quite comfortably. I mean, he with with a player of his style, you know, he was always going to. Um, but I think I, w- I was trying to come up with with comparisons um, of of maybe what Ihataran might be if he if he was <clears throat> if he was used in in Schmidt's uh, team if he did sort of revert back into dropping to that number ten position and yes he is laid back he's nonchalant but he's very creative he's very 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 useful to have um, but I just think his, his his approach doesn't quite tally yet. Um, it's it's kind of like putting uh, Mesut Özil into a Marcelo Bielsa's lead side. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, it you know he again the the quality is undoubtable, but it's just it's just something about it doesn't fit. So I think we'll I hope we'll see sort of some sort of adaptation um, from from Ihata in this year, um, because seeing him out of the team would be a tragedy. Because I think 
you know, again, we, we've discussed about how he's got immense quality. You know, he, he's broken into the first team um, quite ferociously, you know, in, in, in a sense, which was, you can't, you can't drop me now. I'm instrumental to this team. The link up that I've got with Daniel Marlin, um, which he did in the first three, four, five months of last season before Marlin's injury, um, that was... I mean, that was good. That was great to watch, you know, a 17, 18 year old and a 20 year old striker um, linking up so effectively. Um, and I think in the Europa League was was where they did so well. Um, uh, so I think, yeah, I, I, I hope we see plenty of Ihatarin, Um But, but I, I do agree in the sense that it probably will be as one of those two strikers, um, yeah. very loosely termed striker, um, albeit. Um, but I mean, I just spoke about. Daniel Marlin there and um, you know he, he's, he's potentially going to be leading this PSV line um, as we progress through the season um, you know 21 year old Dutch international he's he, ex-Arsenal product uh, and I think you know he can he can also play as that auxiliary inside forward in, in some of the same yeah. way that Timo Werner can, has come to be seen um, can, can Daniel Marlin um, I just think the way that this PSV front three so well attacking four realistically um c- can be seen is is very is very much that they're interchangeable um and that obviously that extends to the likes of Hayata and um Cody Akpo um Noni Madwek you know there's there's a lot of there's a lot a lot of talent in in this attacking setup and they're all very young all very precocious um so i think ultimately if if Schmidt can strike a balance this year with getting good service to Marlon um you know, th- those up, back and through movements that you just touched on, you know, I think we'll we'll see PSV go very far. And if if they don't go far, they'll still be very, very good value for, for, for watching for, from a neutral perspective. Um, and I think that they're, they're unbeaten so far, I believe. Uh, six wins out of seven, I think it is. Um, so, yeah, that, I mean, that, that bodes well for, for, for the future. I think it definitely does. And Marlon's a really interesting player. I what I really like about him is that you, you touched upon the fact that he can play wide or he can play as a, a nine, so he has that versatility. <clears throat> and oftentimes when you have a young player who has that that versatility, he finds himself played wide more often than not because it's easier for coaches to justify playing a young player in wide areas where their mistakes maybe won't be quite as noticeable as if they're played centrally. But Malin, at just 21 years old, is a pure, absolute finisher. You'll see him score goals with his right, with his left, with his head. You'll see him dink the ball over the goalkeeper. You'll see him drive it into the corner. You'll see him shoot from range. You'll see him do a whole lot of different things. But you'll also see him come towards the ball a little bit. And that's where they're going to have to be careful if they do go for... Adonio Marin, Mo Itterin combination, Marlin's going to have to get used to playing as the the reference point that runs behind the defensive line because Itterin will like to come towards the ball to link. So Marlin will have to be the one that then goes beyond in the spaces that Itterin empties for him. But Marlin is somebody who I think will go on from strength to strength this season. He was unfortunate last season. He started the season absolutely on fire and he looked like another player that that Arsenal fans were going to regret the club having having let leave, and we've seen that so many times, and I'm fairly sure we'll talk about players later on in this episode that, that have a similar story that were let go by Arsenal and, and that could have done great things under this Arsenal side at the moment. I think that, that Malin's going to be a player who we really see burst into life, especially in the Europa group stage, where he'll enjoy playing against continental competition, perhaps defences that are are less well suited to dealing with his abilities, pace and his movement. So 
I think that he would be a, a dark horse for me to be the Eredivisie golden boot this season. Oh, interesting shout. I mean, I don't think it's outside the realms of possibility. I think it just matters whether he whether he stays fit ultimately. Um, Probably, yeah. So I think that just about covers um, PSV for us. And, and next on our list is, is CSK Moscow, who admittedly I had to do more research on than, than the others because there are so many under-23s to pick from in their first team. Um, and you don't want to pick the wrong ones when you host an under-23 football podcast, put it that way. <laughs> um, it would take us, Lee, it would take us 11 days roughly to walk to Stadion Enega Gdansk from the Russian capital, um, which is another relatively flat route as well. So I think that's certainly doable. Uh, we'll set up a fundraiser. We'll put it in the, uh, we'll put it in the bio. Um, but just their, their, little, their little fact file. Uh, manager uh, is Viktor Goncharenko, former Bate Borisov and, and CSK assistant. Um, this is his fourth year in charge. Uh, and uh, m- perhaps a more familiar name is, is the captain, Igor Akinfeyev, who's been at the club for almost 18 years, um, which is quite remarkable. Uh, but I suppose it's more normal uh, in, in the Russian Premier League. Um, they finished fourth last year, uh, which was uh, perhaps a bit of a disappointment when you consider the stature of the club. Um, but that still man- meant that they, that they achieved automatic qualification for the Europa League group stage. Um, and I think... Uh, we spoke about PSV's sort of maybe a bit of an easier group um, than than many others. I think CSK have have a difficult one um, this year. Uh, they've got Dinamo Zagreb, who were also in the, the Champions League last season, along with CSK, but are now missing Dani Orbo uh, and, and Josko Gvardiol, um, both at RB Leipzig. Um, they've got Feyenoord, uh, who, who are managed by Dick Advokar. Uh, and, and they got Wolfsberger, um, the obviously the former employer of Gerhard Struber, uh, most recently of Barnsley, and now with uh, the New York Red Bulls. Um, Lee, I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll extend the question to you first, and, and this isn't so I can see who you name and then frantically scribble off the ones you don't mention on my list. Um, but who, who's who's one or two to that you've sort of picked out in this CSKA team? I think the interesting one, the most interesting one for me, is a player that. I had on my a few short lists that I did for some of the the consultancy work that I do for clubs towards the end of last season and middle of last season. Somebody who really, really impressed me is the, the Nigerian winger, Chidera Ajuki, um, who they signed in this close season, 22 years old. And when you talk about a wide player having pace, Ajuki is an absolute burner. He's got the, the ability to, to run, for days, he can he can take people on in, in tight tight areas. He likes to receive the ball with his back to goal. And then he's got a series of, of feints and tricks that he uses to just flick the ball or roll the ball away from defenders if they get too tight. And as soon as the defender's got too tight to him, he's just gone. He, he has the, the pace to give the defenders five, six, seven, eight even yards on him, and he'll still overtake them for a through ball or a long ball over the top. And the most interesting thing for me for Izuke is that last season in particular, we saw him really develop his ability to to then finish when he's got those opportunities. Because initially, when he first came through and first became somebody who who was known when he's playing for Heerenveen in Holland, his finishing in his final ball let him down time and time again. He seemed to almost be too fast for himself, and he would the technique would let him down, or he'd be too far ahead of his teammates, and they wouldn't be up to support him, and he picked the wrong option. But last season, that seemed to really develop. Have you seen much of as you play, played, Joe? Yeah, I first came across him um, at Valengra in Norway, um, but it was only one of those sort of passing acknowledgement, acknowledgements. You know, someone who's got quite decent 
you know numbers um, in in Norway, which is obviously always a good um, a good sort of seam of of, of attacking talent there. Um, but then he obviously moved to here in vain. I got to watch a bit more of him there, um, and I think I thought he was great. You know, only spent the one season there, and admittedly, I think going to Russia is maybe a bit of a surprising one, um, but. Ultimately, for you know, for eleven, twelve million euros, Aaron were never going to turn that sort of money down. Yeah. Um, and I think this season, I haven't seen his numbers yet, but he he started up front um, in in a few games. And I think with that, just being very explosive, um, confident on the ball, and for, for yeah, for maybe being a little bit too fast for himself at times, I think he strikes the ball really well. He always gets good connection. Um, so I think if he perhaps just slows down his thinking and slows himself down. Um, then, then there's a real player there, real potential. Um, but I mean, he, he he was always a big shooter in the Netherlands. You'll agree with me there, Lee. You know, he was always contributing a lot to his teammates in terms of shooting too. So he's always finding those spaces where he can either pop a shot off himself or fight or be the final ball. Um, so I think even if he doesn't continue to start as a striker uh, for for CSKA, you know, servicing the likes of Fedor Shalov um, and and Adolfo Gaich when when they both so when Gaich eventually sort of makes his transition to the first team properly, um, I think he'll probably post some some really good expected assist numbers um, if he isn't turning that into actual goals and assists um, in, himself. Yeah, I think that Azuke gave. CSK is something that they were missing. I mean, more often than not, Goncharenko prefers 4-2-3-1. But he has played a back three, but it's been a 3-4-2-1. So it tends to be the lone striker. And of course, that's Fedor Shalov. Um, and then he has players moving off of Shalov in different areas. So in the 4-2-3-1, there's obviously more scope for a wide player. But as UK is actually really, really interesting as one of two players behind the striker. Because, he, yes, he's got the pace, so you equate him normally to being a winger, and that's what he was at Valgrena, and then at, at Herenveen he was a winger. But he, he also does really well in terms of receiving the ball in the half spaces, so he doesn't just stay wide. He finds pockets of space, and that's why you touched upon the fact his shot numbers were so good. Shot locations not always quite so good in terms of his XG, but his shot numbers were tended to be high because he picks the ball up in those little spaces. And then his first thought is always to be positive and turn and go at goal. So he'll be able to combine with Pedro Shalov, but also with Nikola Vlasic as well, the, the Croatian attacking midfielder, former Everton player. I think that CSK have got a lot of really interesting attacking options. Yeah, I mean, when I was taking a look at sort of CSK's squad list, it it really is their their attacking options that that stand out because, um, you know, you look at them and you think how how is this team sort of not finishing top two every year in Russia? I think you look at Zenith and you think, okay, well, yeah, probably they they're always going to be there, but the rest of the teams they just simply don't have the depth that CSK have. And I think yeah. you know, touching on Shalov there, you know, he's been scoring consistently over the past few seasons. Um, yeah. He's maybe slowed down a little bit of late. Hasn't had a great start to this year, um, but then again, you know, who who has? There's been a a complete mix up with the footballing calendar. Um, but I, I believe he was linked with Crystal Palace not so long back. Um, but nothing concrete ever came out. Um, to me, I get the impression that he could probably be one of those players who settles at a, at a big Russian club like CSK in obviously in a peripheral European league and stays there for quite some time. You know, he's familiar with his surroundings, um, has a decent enough goals record. Um, I mean, I, I could be wrong entirely, 
but uh, I think it's a possibility, especially considering that he just works so well in that environment. He's clearly trusted by Goncharenko, um, and he could. I think he could make a very good career out of maybe just being a one club man rather than testing himself in in Europe and then maybe having to 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 return to to Russia with his tail between his legs. Yeah, and I've been. I think that Jalo has been linked a few times to moves to top five leagues, and <clears throat> there's no doubting that from a pure talent perspective. He has the ability to make that transition because, yeah, you're absolutely right. He, he's dropped off a little bit at the start of this season, but that's nothing to be concerned about. His performances at, at CSKA and for, for Russia have really shown he has everything to be a, a striker and a focal point for a team at a much higher level for me than CSKA. But I've been burned before on Russian players. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember thinking that Roman Pavlyuchenko would would be a fantastic striker when he, he made the transition to top five leagues and, and that never came off. And I think there's an element, it's almost like a myth that's grown up around Russian players that that big clubs don't like to sign from the Russian markets. The price is inflated, first of all, because there's more money in the Russian game. Their, their wages are already quite high, and a top-tier Russian international player can earn an extremely good living just playing in the Russian league, so it can be prohibitive to get them out of Russia if they're not sold in ideas. And then there have been so many cases of really talented Russian players moving abroad and then just not not finding that next step that they can push on from. And you're right, they, they do tend to move back to Russia over time. So Charlov is a player who who has a really interesting profile because he's got the size, but he's got good size, but he's also got a really high level of technical ability. So he has soft feet, he receives the ball really well, he's able to shield the ball when he receives it. And he's got this ability to get shots away when it seems to be under pressure or that there's no avenue for him to get a shot in. He's really good at finding those little gaps between defenders and, and just squeezing the ball through, which is something that's more instinctive than something that's taught for strikers at the top level. But I think I would love to see Chalov make that move to see if he can be the exception to the rule. But like you, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see him, if even if not stay at CSKA, he may be another one who makes a move to like Zenit just to, 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 to kick on for the rest of his career from there. Yeah, I mean, speaking of Zenit, um, they, they clearly have uh, quite a, a good attacking roster themselves um, with the likes of Artem Zuba. Uh, and I think CSK have a similar striker, um, but of the Argentine variation, um, in Adolfo Gaich, who's an, again another big powerhouse who's done excellently at youth level for Argentina's national sides. Great goals records for the under 20 and under 23 teams there. Um, but I think it'll be a while until we see him really make an impact at CSK. Though you know, it's it's always going to be a really difficult transitioning process for 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 any player coming from um, from from South America going to Russia. That's so that's going to be a massive culture shock. But you know, I think man for man, as we've just discussed, you know, CSK are, are quite well endowed up front, um, and and I think. I mean, I can see them doing well in this group in the Europa League. So perhaps maybe Geitz would be used in the latter stages um, in 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 this uh, in this Europa League um, campaign. But I think he's oh, I think he's what twenty twenty one still. Um, yeah. So he's still got yeah. yeah, he's still got you know a lot of time to 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 develop and just make make sure that he's just comfortable there first. Um, I'd just like to mention as well before we finish CSK, um, Vadim Karpov. 18-year-old centre-back who's been who's been starting for for CSK in the league. Um, I actually haven't had the chance to, to actually watch him. He was a late a late pick 
um, from me. But he's definitely popped up on 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 my radar. So it'll be good to see if he gets a chance in Europe as well, because I think, in, in especially in that position, you know, it's, it's with the likes of the the Artem Zubas that you're going to have in the Russian Premier League. It's not an easy job if you're a, if you're a teenage centre back in in the Russian Premier League. No, it's really interesting because Karpov has done well when he's been called upon, but they also signed Bruno Fuchs, the, the Brazilian centre-back, who is another young player, only 21 years of age. So technically they, they could have a centre-defensive partnership there for, for a long time going forward if the two of them can bed in together. I think that, again, centre-back's been an issue for, for clubs like CSK over the years. At full-back, they've still got the likes of Mario Fernandez and Georgi Shinikov, who who are established in their position, established Russian internationals as well. I think if I can just touch on one last one, and I'm going to attempt this, you'll have to bear with me, <laughs> because it's a, it's a bit of a name, but they've just signed a really, really fascinating Kazakhstani player, a 22-year-old attacking midfielder, Bakachar Zainutinov. That's a tough one. Um, 22 years old, they've only just signed him. Uh, from FK Rostov. I think that he's somebody who I've noticed a couple of times playing when I've just caught highlights of Kazakhstan and gone out to have a look. He's somebody who's popped up in data searches for me as well. He's another interesting attacking player, so one to look out for if he gets a start in the Europa League. Well, I can't say that um, we've we've ever profiled a, a Kazakhstan national team player um, in the scouted football handbooks, but there's, maybe he'll be first. Maybe he could be the first one. Exactly, he's running out of time. So you know, he really needs to have a big Europa League campaign um, if he's gonna <laughs> if he's gonna be in contention. Put it that way. Um, next up, uh, we've got a trip over the Alps. See, this is what I was referring to earlier, Lee. This one will be a yeah. hard trek, um, almost equidistant from the Moscow walk. But this one takes you up and over the Alps because we're starting at San Siro uh, and then making our way to to Stadion Energia Gdansk, AC Milan in this year's UEFA Europa League. Um, building quite an interesting young team under Stefano Pioli. Um, but again, I just with Milan and their sort of recent history, I just uh, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I really hope it doesn't implode um, because there's always that potential. Um, but as, as we've done for the previous two, um, just a brief little fact file. Um, the manager, of course, is Stefano Pioli, former Udinese coach. Um, it was almost Ralph Rangnick. Um, at the end of last season, but Pioli seemed to claw back uh, his reputation with a, with a late flourish um, in in the in Serie A. So he he kept his job. Um, the, the the captain is Alessio Romagnoli. Um, following the the departure of Leonardo Panucci two seasons ago, he took the captain's armband, and they finished sixth in Serie A um, last season. They they didn't play in Europe last year, unlike Inter, um, who got to the Europa League final, um, but. I mean, it's it's their best finish in sort of the last seven or eight years has been fifth in Serie A. So I think it's the the last few seasons when they've been sixth, um, <clears> really threatening to to qualify for European football again. Again, every this, the beginning of every season, you think they they're promising a lot. Will they will they deliver on a big stage this time? I mean, it depends. I'm not entirely sure, um, but hopefully that that can be the case. Um, their their group stage opponents, though, I think this is a very very tough group. This is if if there was such a thing as the Europa League group of death, I think I think this one is it. Um, Celtic, uh, they're one of their first opponents. You know, of of course, of Odson Edward and Jeremy Frimpong fame. Um, Sparta Prague, who are home to Adam Plozic, 
uh, who's recently been profiled in the handbook. Uh, and interestingly enough, two players, two different players called Ladislav Kreshi, uh, both of no relation. Um, and I think it's the case where one of them uh, is referred to as Ladislav Kreshi and then sort of two in Roman numerals, which is just, I don't know, it just seems a bit strange, but hey, they both play for Sparta. Um, and the final club in, in group this group uh, is, is Lille. Um, myself and Kevin Jeffries took a forensic look at the French club's transfers over the summer, which included uh, Jonathan David uh, moving from Ghent, um, who did brilliantly in this competition last season. Um, but, I mean, it's good having Milan back in Euro comp- European competition, isn't it? Big historic club, European Knights at the San Siro, you know, the works, but... You know, this 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 could be a, a trouble troublesome group for them. I think it's going to be tough, and just you know, putting my cards out there, I've always had a real soft spot for Milan. Um, the the Milan sides with like Zvonimir Boban, who was one of my favourite players, Rui Costa, um, a lot of really really good sides over the years, and it's been a real shame to see the way that the club have fallen away over the last five or six years, if you like. But there are definite signs that they're coming back. And if any listeners want to to get a little bit of insight into them, I'd recommend going and checking out the piece by James Horcastle in The Athletic. He's done a really deep dive into Milan. It goes into their their scouting process and how they're looking to build the club from the bottom up. And there's a lot of really good information in there. I think that you're right. Celtic will be difficult opponents, perhaps not quite at the level they've been at in recent seasons from a European perspective. They just lost the old firm derby. Um, 2-0 to Rangers and for my money Rangers are looking like the the better team in Scottish football this season than Celtic so perhaps Celtic will will struggle a little bit against them but Sparta Prague are a really really difficult team to play against we've seen that we've seen that over the years in Europe that they, they have the ability to pull off if not upsets and surprises at the very least. And Lille, as you touched upon, are one of the best-run clubs in, in Europe with a lot of really interesting players. And, and you touched upon Jonathan David, who who is fantastic and will come good for Lille despite being a little bit slow to get going. Um, I think that this Milan side, though, seem to have something about them. What was really interesting to me when I was doing the research is that Transfer Market lists the teams after Jage is 248 and if you consider that's with a, a 39-year-old Zlatan who still <laughs> leads the line, it, he pushes that average age up a little bit all on his own. So there's an awful lot of young talent in this side. And who who exactly did you pick out to talk about first? Well, I mean, as you mentioned there, the average age being incredibly low anyway, even with um, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, I think we just had an absolute, we just an absolute plethora of players to pick from. Um, you know, front to back, you've got Gigi Donnarumma in goal. You know, it could well be his last season there, which sounds ridiculous to say, considering he's a 21-year-old goalkeeper <laughs> yeah. and has made 200 appearances and counting. Um, but, you know, it, it, I think ultimately if, if Milan don't, do the business this year that could well could well be his his time coming to an end there uh, but they just got Diogo Dallo on loan from from Manchester United um Sandro Tonali of course in from Brescia um alongside Ismail Benasser in defensive midfield um who's definitely the player you were referring to earlier about being ex Arsenal <laughs> yeah I didn't want to give it away um even I mean even Franck Kessier is is still just 23 um and that's just that's before you get to the attack where you've got Brian Diaz on loan from Real Madrid, um, Daniel Maldini, uh, who is yes, that's his, that's the same surname. It's his nineteen-year-old son, um, Jens Peter Haug, uh, um, who I'm sure you know, Lee, you'll you'll 
have have plenty to say on um, Alexis Salamakas, Rafa Leao, Lorenzo Colombo. I mean, I'm exhausted. I mean, just you can take your pick really from from the absolute treasure trove of youth football and talent in there. I think Brahim Diaz is a is an interesting one because you know he didn't make the first team cut at City mainly in the same way that Jaden Sancho didn't make the cut um, because there just wasn't a pathway for him at that time. Um, Real swooped in, they grabbed him, Sancho style, um, but you know he's, he struggled to make that breakthrough there in, in uh, Madrid as well. I think, is Milan the right place to develop? I mean, there's definitely a, a, a youthful squad there, so he can bounce off the players that are in there. Um, I think they're fun. I think they've got you know the likes of Rafa Leao is 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 de- seems to be developing with every game. Um, he's already scored a few uh, to begin the season, um, and I think with his physical profile, you know, learning from the likes of Zlatan is going to be hugely beneficial for him. But then in turn, that's going to help the more creative players like Diaz perhaps link up a little bit better. Um, eventually, when when Zlatan does begin his natural decline, which appears to be the case when he turns fifty, um, because. <laughs> He is, he is just a phenomenon of, of physical proportions. Um, but yeah, I mean, aside from that, you know, the likes of Ben Asser, great mobile under pressure, press resistant, he's a sharp, clean passer. Um, he's tenacious in your ground duels. You know, he's everything you want in a defensive midfielder. You know, he has that technical quality, but he has that real edge. Um, so I think man for man, in terms of under-23 players, Milan are probably one of, if not the most exciting team in, in this season's Europa League, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. And don't forget Tio Hernandez, the left-back, is only 23 as well. So uh, there, there's a lot of different versatile options that Milan have. I think Ismail Benacer is is one of my favourite midfielders. Real shame that, that Arsenal decided to let him go when they did. I think that under Mikel Arteta, Benacer could could really do great things. You're right that he's very technical, but he's also very combative. He, he wins the ball, he recovers the ball, and then he plays very intelligent passes when he has the ball. What's really interesting to me is how they're going to fit Sandro Tonali into the side because you have Tonali coming into a midfield that already has Benacer and Kessie, and Pioli is firm in his his use of a 4-2-3-1 system. So there's really a double pivot in the midfield there, and and that was Benacer and Kessie towards the end of last season. So is there going to be a slight change of shape? Because there's no doubt that Tonali could play with those two in the same team, or is one of them going to to drop out? If one does, I would would imagine it would be Frank Kessie. I think Sandro Tonali is obviously one that, that scouted fans will be very, very aware of. Um, really broke through last season at Brescia. Um, a lot of early comparisons to mm-hmm. Andrea Pirlo because obviously he also broke through at Brescia. He also has the long hair, but in truth, they're, they're completely different players. Tonali is more tenacious. He's more of a ball winner, but he also has a technical ability to then play going forwards. He does have similarities in Pirlo and his ability from free kicks, though. What was really interesting to me when Milan signed him was that the story goes that his hero growing up wasn't Pirlo, it was actually Reno Gattuso. And Tonali's family were all Inter fans, so mm. Tonali had, had had trials at Milan as a young player and, and was never signed. And then, obviously, eventually got the opportunity to come back to Milan this summer. He actually phoned Gattuso, and Gattuso's obviously the, the Napoli coach, and he asked for Gattuso's permission to take his former numbers, his squad numbers. So th- there's obviously a lot of respect for for Gattuso from Tonali. And there are elements of that 
in him. You can see his tenaciousness, his ability to, to go after the ball and win the ball back for his team. But then mm-hmm. in possession, he's a really, really interesting progressive passer. I mean, that's all very Italian, isn't it? Very, very respectful. Uh, done things the, the proper way. Um, you know, I, I, I imagine that that was, that was quite an interesting phone call um, from, from both sides of, of the phone. Um, so I didn't know that at all. Uh, that's quite an interesting little little anecdote um, from 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 Milan's beginning to the season. Um, I, I mean, Jens Peter Haug. I mean, is the one that I I think feel like we have to we have to talk about. You know, yeah. I, I remember Ben Wells, who's, who's a fantastic Norwegian footballing um, yeah. analyst, telling me about him and, and the season that that Bodo Glimt were were having, or at least threatening to have, back in about April May time. Um, and I kind of. At the time, I thought, you know, I'll, I'll keep an eye. I'll, I'll keep an eye out. But he's just absolutely exploded since then. Um, he's, he's obviously got his move to to Milan uh, after playing them in the Europa League qualifying rounds, um, where I think he scored, got an assist or, or something. Um, and he's just such a quality player um, that you look at him and you don't think that he would sort of have that grit and determination that. Um, you know, he just looks a lot more like like a very classy, nonchalant Moehateran type player. But he's not. He's a very hard runner. Um, I think he's he's very versatile across sort of the the attacking midfield and, and wide options. Um, so I think what while he might not be a shoe in to be um, starting right away for this Milan side, I think that in time he will be. Uh, he he can definitely prove to be a, an instrumental player. And I think it's just a feel good move to be honest. Like yeah. a player coming from. From a club like Bodo in Norway, you know, historically haven't exactly been one of the biggest clubs um, in even in Norway. So, uh, you know, to, to come to somewhere and play, to, to come and play at San Siro week in week out, has definitely got to be. Um, he, he's he's probably pinching himself every day he wakes up. Yeah, and the narrative is that the deal was done after that game. Mm. I mean, members of the two boards got together in, in Milan where were adamant that they wanted Haugen now. They didn't want him to loan back to Bodo Glimt for the rest of the season. They wanted him to come to Milan now and be part of the first team. And that just shows the impact that he's had. And it's such an interesting story because I'm sure that, that Ben, you touched on Ben Wells, I'm sure that he's been fully aware of Haug over over the years. But he's never, there were glimpses of him as a young player. I remember him popping up when I was doing some some scouting for an agency in Scandinavia, I remember him popping up and looking good, but there wasn't any consistency around him at that point. And I don't know if you know, but at the beginning of this season, a deal was agreed for Hauga to move to Cercle Bruges in Belgium. Um, the deal was done, just paperwork to be signed, and then all of a sudden Hauga exploded and Bodo Glimt exploded and suddenly Hauga's, Hauga's representatives pulled out of the deal because obviously they were suddenly aware that he was attracting interest from other teams. But I think even then, at that point, nobody would have predicted that 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 move would be to Milan. It's such an interesting story. And he's got the ability, because what Milan are missing in this 4-2-3-1, they're they're missing genuine players who can play either wide or in the half spaces or or in the centre in that band of three. That's something they need to work on and to find. And, And Hauga's got the ability to play in a number of different attacking positions. So... I think that as the season goes on, we will see him break it in the first team. Yeah, and I think that 
the Europa League is a is a perfect um, competition for him um, to to do that in. You know, again, testing yourself against the, you know the, the likes of opponents of Celtic and Sparta Prague and Lille's quality. Um, I think that's that's only going to be beneficial for him as he rises to the challenge. Um, but finally, I'm very conscious of the time, but we we, we get to Nice, uh, and this is definitely this is definitely the longest trek. You might have to switch walking boots for this one because we're going over various hills, mountain ranges, up from the Mediterranean coast to the Baltic coast in Gdansk. You know, 15 days, no thank you. That is going to be an absolute grueler. Um, but yeah, managed by by uh, Patrick Vieira. Um, their captain is the, the 37-year-old Brazilian centre-back Dante. Um, and um, again, for the past few seasons with with, with Vieira in charge, they've, they've kind of fluctuated in their style of play and that's depended on sort of the personnel that they've had at their disposal. Um, they've, they've just been bought last year by Ineos Group um, so that they've had, they do have relatively new owners um, and they've, they've spent a reasonable amount of money. Um, but in their in their Group C, their opponents this year, they've got Bayer Leverkusen, obviously without Kai Havertz, but they do have Florian Wirtz, Ezekiel Palacios, Edmund Tapsoba. So there's still quite a lot of uh, under 23 players there. Um, they've got Slavia Prague um, and, and Hapoel Beersheva, um, the Israeli Premier League side. Um, but I think with Nice, they're another team who they're pretty much their entire first team setup, barring the likes of... Um, Pierre Lee, Melu, Morgan Schneidlin, and Dante—they're they're pretty much all under twenty-five or twenty-five yeah. and under, um, which again makes them an absolute watch for us. Um, but they've also got some players that we've followed for quite quite some time, and also another ex-Arsenal um, youth product um, uh, in, in their in their squad list, um, who's just joined them. So. I mean, the first player that I want to talk about is Amin Guiri, um, who is, uh, first of all, an, a football manager legend. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, we're big football manager players. Um, but three goals, two assists, I think, so far this season. You know, I think €7 million Euros it was from, from Olympique Lyonnais, which could prove to be one of, sort of the bargains of the next few years, to be honest, because, you know, he, he, was, he was threatening to break out um, with Lyon at the beginning of last season, but injured his his ACL right beforehand and essentially missed the opportunity um, through no fault of his own, really. Um, you know, he's always had a fantastic record of, uh, at France um, youth level um, in international tournaments. I think there's a few, get a few um, competitions at under 17, under 19 level where his goals surpassed the games that he played in those tournaments. So he's never been one to shy away from the, uh, from the, the small, from the bigger games. Um, but I mean, the, the, this is probably the least analytical point that that, uh, that I've got to give today. But in November last year, he played for Lyon against Zenit in the UEFA Youth League at around midday, and then in the evening, Martin Terrier was struck down with illness, and Guiri was called up to the senior side to play in the same fixture, um, which I think was the first time that that had ever happened, um, playing in the youth league and the Champions League in the same day. Um, but yeah, in terms more back to sort of the an, an analytical side of things, I, I love Guiri. I love how he can play wide. Um, I love how he's very much like a bulldog when he plays through the middle, but also has just a very, um, very, very good creative touch. Um, we saw that most recently with the France under 21 side. Um, he, he knows where his teammates are. And I think if he can link up quite well with the, the likes of Kasper Dahlberg at, um, at Nice, I think there's there's the makings for a very versatile but very um very potent partnership. 
Yeah, I think that Guiri's been coming now for years, hasn't he? He's been known about for such a long time because of his exploits in scoring goals for France's underage teams. He's always been a striker that everybody expected to make the breakthrough. It was just a matter of when. And I have to admit that I'm still quite surprised that Leon let him go quite so easily. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if there must have been something between the player and the club that the player was unhappy at minutes or something along those lines because Leon at a club that you tend to associate with being intelligent in the market and certainly letting a talent who's homegrown like like Guiri leave the way that they did, it doesn't strike me as being a very intelligent move from a club perspective because you, you're really losing a lot of value there in the player and, and my, my preference for him is to play in attack. I think that that'll be his, his long-term position will be as a nine, but we, we talked about it earlier on with Daniel Malin that it's not unusual for young attacking players to be able to play in the wide areas as well and to perhaps be used there a little bit to bleed them into the first team. I think that Guiri is such an interesting finisher because he, I mean, again, I talked about Malin having all these different finishes. Guiri has them all, but he does it with a little bit more flair, I think, than Malin mm. does. There was one goal, I think it was earlier this season, when he collects the ball at the edge of the area and he just shapes his foot and just bends the ball almost casually in the top corner of the goal. And he's just got this ability and this belief about him that he knows he will score goals when he gets the opportunity. And I think that under this the the side, under this nice side, I think he'll get a lot of chances this season. Yeah, it's very much like Dimitri Payet in that sense where he exactly. just his yeah. his technique is sort of so clean, um, so precise. And that you, you know, it's one of those where it's the it's the it's the old um, Andy Gray. He, he knew it was in from the moment it left his foot. You know that 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 sort of finisher. Um, but yeah, the, the for me the, the the move was it was surprising that Leon let him go for for again for for such a small fee. Um, but to I, I thought well, given that he's had such a big injury at such an early developmental stage of his career. Perhaps they were thinking, you know, we're, we're doing well to get seven million here because, for example, if it goes again, he might lose some sort of element to his game. Um, so I think that that may be that may have been what Leon were thinking. Um, but I mean, we saw this summer with the whole Hussein to Arsenal saga. You know, they don't let their best players go cheap, and they don't let them go easily. Um, so it, it, for me, I thought there must have been some some overbearing reason, maybe in his medical um, file, which said that you know perhaps getting closer to ten million um, was was going to be a good deal. But ultimately, it could just prove to be a bad decision on their part. Um, which I hope not for not that I've got any sort of um, vendetta against Leon for letting him go, but I hope it is because I really hope that he does well at, at Nice. Um, and I think it's kind of a theme sometimes with with the bigger French clubs. You know, we we see. In fact, there's there's an example um, in in this Nice team um, that Monaco let um, Kepren Turam uh, leave on a free yep. transfer last summer, uh, and and I mean those Turam genes are pretty special because he's just been <laughs> he's just been breaking everything up at the base of Nice's midfield um, to begin with this season, um, which I think in turn has allowed Vieira maybe a little bit unexpectedly to go, uh, you know, to go quite attacking with Guiri, Dolberg and, and to go after um, Jeffrey and Adelaide as well. Um, so there's, I mean, there's the potential to play that as a front three, which is, I mean, very, very exciting. Um, but I think that's, again, free transfer, who's now proving to be one of the more um, 
less again not as maybe a more of a flair player but just being so pivotal and influential in sort of how um how nice playing in the transitional phases you know tidying up releasing the more um creative players uh, i think yeah kevin turan was another one that sort of i had uh, earmarked in this in this nice team as as being um as being one to watch really because he, I mean, he's 19 as well so getting yeah. a, a real first taste of european football is going to be good for him and i think again with the the level of opponent that he that he's going to be facing the likes of Bayer Leverkusen um it's only going to be beneficial yeah and i think that one of my favorite things about Kefren Turam is that obviously he is Lillian Turam's son he is Marcus Turam of Montreal-Gladbach's brother but the three of them, and you, you hardly ever see this, and it's not unusual for a father to, to have a son who goes on to become a professional footballer as well as, as his dad was, but they all play in different positions, yeah. which just baffles me a little bit. Because Turam, Lillian Turam, for people who maybe didn't see him play, he was one of the most dominant central defenders of his generation. Um, his, his time when he played for Parma and for Juventus, he was... He was unassailable at times in his, his defensive positioning and his power and his reading of the game. And then, of course, Marcus Turam is this attacking, influential, wide player who could become a nine going forward. But then Kefrem is at a six. And there's just no link between the positions. It's so interesting to me. But they all have the same... There's obviously the, the DNA goes through the three of them. They're all big, powerful, quick, but... More than that, and Kefrem has this the same way that his father did, his ability to read the game and to understand the game, and that's why he's doing so well for Nice in terms of breaking the play up. Um, I think that Monaco letting them go for a free transfer is going to be a huge mistake, but there have been issues around Monaco's squad building now for a few years. There have been some some odd decisions and choices that have been made, and I think that they're they're moving to try to address that now, but obviously too late to keep a hold of Kefren Turan because you're right, he's got the ability to win the ball back for his team, but then his progressive nature from that point is what then feeds the the attacking players, the, the wide players, the, the players breaking forward into the 10 position. He can find the striker with driven through passes. He's got so many different aspects to his, his game and at only 19 and getting regular first team minutes. And don't forget, he's also got, a player who's his a former player who's his current coach in Patrick Vieira who who excelled in the same role that he's playing in. So there will be a lot of opportunities for Turam to learn, I think, over the course of this season. But he's one that I, I really expect to explode at some point and really come to the fore of people's consciousness. I mean, it's not a bad duo to be learning from, is it? If your dad's Lillian Turam and your coach <laughs> is Patrick Vieira, it's exactly. I mean it's all right, isn't it? It's not quite you know, it's not quite Sam Allardyce, is it? Um, <laughs> but I mean that, that, like you say, I mean the, clearly that that runs through the family. But I mean, it's not like you see the um, like the, with the Schmeichels, the Casper uh, was always only going to be a goalkeeper. Exactly. Um, exactly. You know, I think it's 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 very good to see that you know they're they're all doing well. I mean, not Lillian anymore, but um, Kepren and and uh, and Marcus both doing very well in different leagues, different styles, different positions. But to see those sort of those few parallels is is very nice. Um, 
they, the Nice have also got um, sort of the likes of you know Jordan Lotomba that they signed from from Young Boys this summer, um, newly capped Swiss international. Um, I think he's from what I've seen just in the few very brief clips. I think he's adapting, but he hasn't adapted just yet to top yeah. five European league football. Um, but also with the likes of Jeffrey and Adelaide signing from from Lyon, um, another another ex Arsenal uh, product there. Uh, who's, who's again a very sort of tall but um, languid uh, wing presence. Um, I think Nice do have just a very very exciting young team this season, and you know even the players who aren't twenty three and under, you know the likes of Ronnie Lopez who I think is only twenty four. You know they've got they've got a wealth of wealth of young talent here, and I think if you were a young player coming into this group, you'd feel quite welcome. You'd feel quite um, quite understood. Um, not like you're going into a, a Lazio, for example, and um, where you know a lot a lot of players are probably at their at their peak age and going into their thirties. So, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm very very pleased with sort of the the, the squad makeup of Lille, um, of Nice this season, and I hope that they can they can beat the the likes of you know Slavia Prague, Hapoel Beersheva, you know, quite handsomely, just to really um, earmark themselves as right. We are going to sort of we're going to go far in this competition. Yeah, exactly, and I think that. One of the the most startling revelations for me in doing the research for this podcast is that Yusef Atal is actually twenty four now. Yeah, so he's no longer eligible for for scouted football, which is a bit of a a disappointment. But I would perhaps mention one other player for people just to keep an eye on. He might not get that many minutes this season, but when he does play, look out for him. Dan Ndoye, who's another player they've got from Switzerland. He was on loan at Lausanne last year and he, he caught my eye in a couple of data searches that I was doing over the course of the season. He's a 19-year-old right winger for Swiss Under-21 International. He is absolutely rapid if you see him play. Really direct, really good attacking talent. So another player perhaps for, for people to look out for if they are going to catch any of Nice's group stage games. Yeah, I think um, I think he got an assist uh, for an, in the 3-1 win against San Etienne at the weekend, um, coming coming off the bench, I believe. So yeah, I think uh, Dan and Doy, um, yeah, you'll be one that I'll be keeping a close eye on. Um, but Lee, final question before we go. Um, it's time to put your money where your mouth is and tell us who you think is, is winning the Europa League proper this season. Such a difficult one because there are so many <laughs> really, really good sides. I think that if I was right now going to put my money on a single team who I thought were going to do really well, it would be Milan. I think that Milan are well-placed. They've got a lot of depth and, and flexibility within their squad. Yes, they're, they're trying to push forward to get Champions League qualification in Serie A this season, and I think they will. But I just think that they've got the quality to go really, really far. Yeah, I, no, I can see that. I completely get where you're coming from. And I suppose it's a difficult question. It was a loaded question because there's 48 teams to pick from and then you're going to get eight more dropping out of the Champions League. So it's always difficult. Um, I am going to go with Sevilla finishing third in their Champions League group and <laughs> coming back to reprise their role. Yeah. Yeah. Um, coming back to their home competition. Exactly. To, yeah, they're, they're right. not even a like, team at this stage, are they? They're, they're just a Europa League team that, that happened to play in Spain. <laughs> that is their competition, yeah. That is their domestic uh, their, their domestic calendar. Um, 
well, time is up, I'm afraid, and uh, our delving into the four Europa League sides is is over. Um, thank you again to Lee for for making another appearance. Um, we're going to try and make this a regular occurrence. Um, so look out for more of myself and Lee discussing and, and chatting about players who've taken our fancy in the, the coming weeks and months. Um, all that's left to say is um, we hope this year's Europa League is is as entertaining as last year's was, and you know we we might end up seeing Sevilla back in the competition for another run at the title. Um, if they fail to qualify from their Champions League group. Um, although it would be very good to get a new name on the trophy, um, perhaps even one that hasn't won it before, or maybe a historic one like like AC Milan. Um, Lee, have you, have you got anything that you'd like to, to impart to, to our the listeners? Uh, no, no, nothing really. If you, you want to catch any of my writing, um, plan to do a lot more writing over the next couple of months. So just follow me on Twitter at FM Analysis and links always go up on there. But make sure you're following Scout Football as well. I'm sure you are if you're listening to this this podcast, but it's such a great platform to learn about young players. Well, thank you very much and, and cheers, Lee, for, for, for coming on again. Um, I've been Joe Donoghue and you've been listening to the Scout Football podcast with Lee Scott. Bye for now.